What's going on? Welcome into the Matt Bernier Show, part of the In The Money Media Network. My name is Matt Bernier. You can follow me on Twitter at Bernier underscore Matt. Today is Monday, September the 27th, 2021. This is episode 84 of the program. However you listen, thank you for doing so. You can find this podcast basically anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, InTheMoneyPodcast.com. There are others out there if that's where you take your stuff in. And if you're someone who follows along over on YouTube, all you need to do in the search bar, type in Matt Bernier Show. You'll get this episode along with the 83 prior. While you're over there or wherever you listen to the pods, uh, please rate, review, subscribe. If you're on YouTube, make sure the bell icon's lit up. That way you get notified anytime new content is uploaded to the In The Money Media Network channel. This Thursday, the beginning, the first round of the postseason for the Horse Player Happy Hour tour. Uh, but there will also be a sort of, well, I don't want to say sort of, it's a Breeders' Cup betting challenge qualifier going alongside the first round of the Horse Player Happy Hour Tours postseason. So be sure to get involved. PTF and I will be on there as well. And then we'll roll right into our friends Nick Luck and Brittany Yurton for Cocktails and Conversations on Thursday evening. So be sure to check all that sort of stuff out. For this week's show, there are sort of, let's say, three segments to this. At the top, looking back at the three races from Parks. And I'm not going to do a deep dive into all three of them, but how it then relates to the middle section of this week's show, which... It just got me thinking a little bit about Breeders' Cup, because here we are, and I had mentioned it a few weeks ago. We're at the point now, this is stating the obvious this far along. We're only five weeks from the Breeders' Cup World Championships, or thereabouts. This is the last time you're going to see these horses in the afternoon before the Breeders' Cup out of Delmar, the first Friday and Saturday in November. We've already seen some of the, the main players have their final preps, and we will still yet to see some of them in the next week or two. But... How the three performances, the three big races from Parks on Saturday relate to the Breeders' Cup, and specifically how horses have won each of those races that the horses from the races this past Saturday will be playing out. So the Classic, the Distaff, and the Sprint. And do the horses who performed well in those three races this past Saturday, the Pennsylvania Derby, the Cotillion, and the Gallant Bob, do their running styles fit Basically, the, the way that these races need to be run in order to be successful in the Breeders' Cup. So hopefully that was clear enough, the way I explained that. And then we'll wrap things up with week four of the NFL, and we'll go over some forecasts for 538's website. So let's let's start off, though, with just rehashing what everybody already knows, the Pennsylvania Derby, the Cotillion, and the Gallant Bob. PA Derby is won by Hot Rod Charlie. He gets his grade one win. 111 buyer speed figure. Monster time form US figure as well. I believe 133, somewhere thereabout. The Cotillion Clarier gets her grade one. She earns a 93 buyer. It's a pretty impressive victory all around. We'll get into that a little bit more. And then Gallant Bob, you've got Jackie's Warrior, who just continues to do what Jackie's Warrior does. Runs massive races. I believe you're into 107 buyer, somewhere thereabouts. A career best fig for him. All three of those horses, and I don't want to give short shrift to Midnight Bourbon. We'll talk about him when we do the sort of deeper piece here with the Pennsylvania Derby. But all three of the winners run races that make them legitimate candidates anyway for each of their Breeders' Cup races. And let's start with the Gallant Bob with Jackie's Warrior. You're at a point now where if this horse shows up and runs his race, he's not only the most likely winner of the Breeders' Cup sprint, he probably just will win. 
I don't know that there's anyone fast enough to run with him early on, but also on top of that, any horse that is talented enough, and I, I apologies to Jackie's Warrior, I said a 107. Here in the 107 in the Allen Jerkins at Saratoga, you're in a 110 on Saturday. And he never really got out of first gear. But did it very, very comfortably, very easily. If this horse shows up with that race at Del Mar, he's going to win. I don't see anyone who's really all that close to him at this point. So, okay, not really breaking any news there. You go to the cotillion with the Phillies. And I had mentioned it last week in the show when we went over the the fair odds piece, how I didn't think there was any standout in there. And even after the result that we can go back and take a look at with Clarier winning, if you just look at the figs, really, no, none of these girls did anything to really assert themselves as much the best. Although the final margin and the way in which Clarier won, to me, indicates she was much the best, and maybe I didn't give her enough credit going into the race. From a fig standpoint, I mean, she only earned a 93. It's not like she blew the doors off the field. However, there is more to that 93, in my opinion, than meets the eye because of the way the race was run. There was no speed signed on. She carried an exceptional amount of ground, and the way she finished, she powered home. And I think it's the thing that gets me a little bit I'm looking at that distaff division. I'm trying to figure out outside of Latruska, outside of Malathot, who are really the outside of She Dares the Devil, who are the the main players in that division? You've got the Phillies and Mares that would come out of the personal ensign, who were no match for Latruska. You've got anyone that would come out of the Alabama or the CCA Oaks. Many of them ran here in the Cotillion. So let's say Clarier, let's say Army Wife Maracuja. You've got the horses who ran against She Dares the Devil in that, I believe it was the Lokes Grove down at Churchill. But in reality, I don't know that any of them outside of her are really Breeders' Cup distaff types. Clarier, the reason she at least becomes mildly intriguing to me is not just the way that she won the race, but she has put together, I think horse racing for me, handicapping-wise, you start to see, occasionally you see things that aren't there. But you can see patterns, and patterns develop for different horses at different times and in different fashions. Clarier, for her entire career, I'm just going to rip through start to finish. She debuted October 25th of last year, so she's not even been racing for a full year. She's gone from buyer of 75 to 83, another 83, so she paired up buyer tops, moved forward to an 87. She then moved forward to a 91. Paired up that 91 again. Regressed a bit in the CCA Oaks to an 88, but I've laid out the, the reasoning why I think that kind of regression came. She was probably taken out of her element, forced into that earlier move. Then she comes back in the Alabama and earns a 93. She's no match for Malathot, but it's a career best. And now in the Cotillion, with no pace to run at, carrying an extreme amount of ground, she earns another 93 buyer. Whenever she has paired up for all intents and purposes, and again, that, that CCA Oaks, while she technically regressed, I, I think you can say she at least ran to that 91, if not kind of showed a little bit more just on the, the way the dynamics of the race played out. She has shown a history of moving forward after pairing up career best numbers. And with a little bit of pace. I'm not saying she's the most likely winner by a long shot, but coming into the cotillion, I wasn't sold that any of these girls had any real chance in the distaff. Coming out of it, 
Latruska is going to go. She dares the Devil's going to go. Maybe you get one or two other horses that want to be forwardly placed. If all of a sudden that pace is, is honest, Clarier, if she takes a step forward, let's say into the high 90, low 100 range, maybe she can get up to 100. With some pace in her running style, all of a sudden she just becomes a, a, an intriguing candidate that I had not considered and I didn't think I would be considering at this juncture in the game. But Clarier, I thought this was a really good performance from her in the Cotillion. And that brings us to the Pennsylvania Derby. Now, if you're someone who is just purely a numbers player, you're going to look at it and say, Hot Rod Charlie is arguably the horse to beat now because he has the versatility that a horse like Nick's go doesn't. He's probably going to get the jump on essential quality. And from a fig standpoint, he's every bit as fast as either of them. Here's a 111 buyer speed figure. Again, I brought up that gaudy Timeform US fig that he earned, keeping in mind that the pace was hot throughout, according to Timeform US. 111 buyer. Jumping off the page. He's there. Midnight Bourbon runs another just credible race. He's a very likable racehorse. There's, there's nothing really to knock about him. He's paired up career buyer tops of 107. So let's just talk about the race itself. Those two effectively go one to the entire way. Going into it, they were the two most likely winners for, you know, I think most reasonable folks. Um, Speaker's Corner being bet down to 7-2 to two was crazy talk. Crazy talk. Neither here nor there. The idea of Hot Rod Charlie being one of the fastest horses does not bother me. The way in which he did it bothers me. And yes, he went fast. And you can say maybe he was getting tired. Maybe Flavian Pratt intentionally moved him out there. Whatever the case may be. Aside from Gunrunner, I don't think a horse like Hot Rod Charlie can do the things that he did with his leads and win the Breeders' Cup Classic this year. I just don't. It may not be the deepest group, but the top is very, very good. and I think it's a contentious group. I know contentious by definition is a fight, but I think it's a pretty competitive group at the top of the group of, of the of the classic division. And I don't know that Hot Rod Charlie can get away with very early lead change to his right coming off the far turn. Again, whether the, the drifting out numerous paths was intentional by Pratt. I, to be honest, I almost hope that was the case because if he did that on his own and he was really early to change to his right lead... Red flag, red flag. Then when he straightens back out, he swaps leads twice in deep stretch. Red flag, red flag. And the gallop out was eh, at best. He ran really fast. but And I'm not going to talk anyone off. If you love this horse because of all the reasons, he's tactical, he can win on the lead, he can win from off of it. He is arguably given essential quality, his toughest test to date. And hell, we've talked about that idea of a rivalry. This would be, I mean, for purely entertainment reasons, it would be fantastic to have Hot Rod Charlie in essential quality duel down the lane at Del Mar in the Breeders' Cup Classic, given their history. You know, their run in the Belmont. Their showdown, granted neither of them won, but they were right next to each other in the Derby. The way that they ran against each other in the, in the Breeders' Cup Juvenile last year. It would just be fantastic. It would be probably the first real rivalry we've had in God knows how long. But the handicapper in me, and I am someone who's very much part of, as much as I am a numbers player, I'm also a visual player. I don't think you can do that sort of stuff and beat 
first, let's just run them down. I don't think you can beat Nick Sko doing that. And even if you can beat Nick Sko doing that, can you then beat essential quality doing that? And if it's not essential quality, maybe it's a Triple E or it's someone else who's sitting a little bit off and, and coming with that run. I just, if he had done everything on cue professionally, which he typically has done in the past, I would have no, I, I would be saying, boy, he's, he's going to be a, a tough nut to crack in the classic. I see this and go, I, I kind of want to just toss him. And if he wins, I'll say, you know what? I was wrong. But based on the tape, no matter how fast he ran, the stuff that he did, that bothers me. I can't, I, I, I can't just, you know, assume he's Gunrunner. Because that's ridiculous. Because Gunrunner is one of the best horses we've had in the past 15, 20 years. Maybe he is. I don't know that. I don't know that he's not. Put it that way. I just can't. I, I can't get past this nagging feeling that when you see that sort of stuff, I don't know, man. leaves a, leaves a bad feeling for me. I, I I'm I'm more inclined to go against than I am to pile on as far as getting on the bandwagon for him winning the classic. As far as Midnight Bourbon goes, before we pivot to sort of the the bigger talking piece here. He's a he's paired up 107s, and this also makes me wonder a little bit about the figs. Based on buyers, the top five horses in this race either equaled or eclipsed their career best on Saturday. Now, this time of year, the three-year-olds can take that step forward, but that seems like an awful lot that all five of them either ran their best or tied their best. I mean, American Revolution lightly raced. I could understand it. I liked him. He ran a good third. Folsom, yeah, I suppose he ran, he tied his career best, but he ran a 97 and he was beaten by nine. And then if you want to take it another step, Burbonic, who equaled his career best, he was beaten almost 13. It's just something for, you know, fodder. Think about it. But what does all this mean? The way Hot Rod, oh, and by the way, Midnight Bourbon, they're bypassing the Breeders' Cup in general which I think is sneaky, a really good play. Give this horse some time. He'll be the favorite in the Clark, assuming none of the, the classic horses show up there. And you're building to a campaign for next year. And let's be honest, he can't beat Hot Rod Charlie right now. And I'm not saying this in a negative light, but it's just the fact of the matter. He can't beat Hot Rod Charlie right now. He can't beat Essential Quality right now. Probably can't beat Nick's Go. And then if you go to the Dirt Mile, you're going to have to deal with a horse in all likelihood like Life is Good or Silver State another Asmussen runner, mind control. I mean, it's not like he would have the, the dirt mile given to him. So I think this is probably the right move. And who knows? Maybe you come back as a four-year-old and he is gun runner 2.0. But I think it's a, a, a prudent move. I think it's a prescient move, however you want to phrase it. I think it's a good idea to say, you know what? Let's get him a grade one at the end of the year. We'll bring him back as a four-year-old better than ever. But how does Hot Rod Charlie in the way that he runs, Clarier in the way that she runs, and Jackie's Warrior in the way that he runs, how do those styles translate to the races that they'll run in in the Breeders' Cup? Understanding that all of these years that we've put together, or I've put together here from 2012, excuse me, from 2020 back to 2013, yes, they're run at different surfaces in different years. So you have to think about that a little bit. But I do think there is some there is some information anyway to that you can that you can use to your advantage here. 
And I'll be very curious to know what folks think about this data. Not a huge sample size. You're only dealing with eight years. But I think it's enough that you can kind of paint the picture and see where certain horses have needed to be in order to run and win each one of these races and use it to your advantage or totally disregard it. But compare it to how these three horses that we've talked about, Hot Rod Charlie, Clarier, and Jackie's Warrior, compare and contrast the results to how those horses run. Let me know your thoughts about the three races from Parks on Saturday. Overall, about Hot Rod Charlie, Midnight Bourbon, Jackie's Warrior, Clarier, anyone else that you want to hear about or you want to talk about beneath the video player on YouTube or on Twitter at Bernie or underscore Matt. Now, let's take a look. A little bit of a, a, little bit of a profile for the Breeders' Cup Classic, the Breeders' Cup Distaff, and the Breeders' Cup Sprint. How have these horses over the past eight years won these races? So when we take a look at a horse like Hot Rod Charlie, we'll start with the Classic. What you're looking at on the screen, the past eight years, 2020 all the way back to 2013, the number of horses that ran in the Breeders' Cup Classic, the winner's odds, and where the winner was at first call and second call. So in route races at a mile and a quarter, the first call is going to be a half mile into the race. Second call will be three quarters into the race. These down here are just the averages, the average field size, the average off odds, and where these horses on average have been positioned half mile into the race and three quarters of a mile into the race going a mile and a quarter. And it's not even so much about who it was or any of that kind of stuff, which horse won in any of these given years. It has more to do with thinking about who could be running this year, where they're likely to be positioned, and how that translates based on what we've seen over the past eight runnings. So with relation to Hot Rod Charlie, he's a horse that can be forward, he can be on the lead or just off of it, which based on this, this column right here, that's a, that's a pretty good trait to have, that you can either be on the lead, as we have seen many horses setting the pace. We've also seen horses coming from just off of it, a few lengths off of it. The, the key part is when you enter that far turn, based on the past eight runnings, the farthest back a winner has been at that point has been a length and a half. So Hot Rod Charlie fits the running style to a T. I kind of brought it up back when we were talking about the Kentucky Derby. I wasn't sold on him, but he had arguably the perfect running style for the Derby and for a race at the Belmont Stakes. And no surprise, he's arguably got the ideal running style for the Breeders' Cup Classic. Now, that doesn't change the fact that I hated what we saw with the leads and all that sort of stuff. And doing all of that against good horses, how is he going to be able to overcome all that? But just purely from a running style standpoint, Hot Rod Charlie ticks the boxes. Now, who else that could potentially run in the Classic ticks this sort of profile? Well, we know Nick's go. He is one-way speed. If he doesn't make the front, I don't think he can win. You assume he's just going to go guns blazing. Essential quality has shown a versatility and an ability to adapt to paces that are thrown at him, whether they be slow or fast, that is always going to make him, I think, a player. Now, having said that, though, with the exception of these two races, 2019 and 2016, you don't want to be that far back. I could see him landing in this area, this 2018 run, which I believe was accelerate. Two and a half off of it and going and running down or having to go and run down 
horses who will have the jump on him, whether that's Nick Sko, Hot Rod Charlie, Medina Spirit, those types. With a Vino Rosso year, when he won four and a half off of it, half mile into the race, perhaps the central quality would be that far back. But boy, he's going to really need to be that much better than those horses that he's going to spot a few lengths to if he's going to get the job done. And this run back here in 2016, that happened to be Arrowgate. And he ran down California Chrome, and the two of them were 25 lengths. That's a bit of an exaggeration, but they were a pole ahead of the rest of the field. So outside of those three, they're the logical runners. You can start to think of horses like Tripoli, who has shown a little bit of versatility. He can be closer or come from a little farther off of it, which, again, is, is sort of the, the ideal running style. Hot Rod Charlie genuinely, I think, it, uh, fits it to a T. But Tripoli can be versatile. Express Train can be versatile. Now, I don't think Express Train is good enough to win, but from a positional standpoint, he could arguably be right there. But outside of that, you're starting to have to make cases for some of these horses that, I'm not saying they're impossible, but based on, and I know this is a small sample size, but I mean, th th this is relatively accurate, I would think, or, or indicative of the trend going even farther back. You, you need to be much the best or have something just wild happen where the pace melts down. And who knows? Maybe that happens with Nick's go and um, uh, names are slipping my mind. Medina Spirit, Nick's go, Hot Rod Charlie. Maybe they line up on the front, duel each other into submission, and it sets up for, you know, Code of Honor coming from 100 out of it or, or, or someone like that. But for, for the most part, this has been a race that, you need to be reasonably close to the front. And by the way, from a gambling standpoint, past eight years, it hasn't yielded any ridiculous results. The highest off has been six to one and the lowest has been three to five. And that was American Pharaoh. That's the classic. Let's scroll down to the distaff. And I, the distaff is the one that I think is the most interesting to me because based on the past eight runnings, the average field size has been just under 10 but in all reality, that's including this year when I believe that was Beholder and Close Hatches and Princess of Silmar and maybe Royal Delta was even in there. It was a field of six. If I take that out of the sample, you're up to 10 and a half closer to 11. So I think that's what you're probably looking at. Now, the reason I do think it's intriguing, though, is you take a look at the odds. You've had everything from even money to nine to one win. And from a running style standpoint, you've had a little bit of everything. I find it fascinating that not one of these winners, and 0.1 is effectively a nose or a head off of it, um, none of these horses has been on the lead entering the far turn. They've all been reasonably close, with the exception of this race right here, and I believe that was Blue Prize. But none of them have been outright on the lead, which if you compare that to the, to the classic, five of the past eight have been outright on the lead as the field enters the far turn. That has not been the same case for the distaff. So you can probably get away with a little bit more, but then you have to start thinking about the individual race itself and the shape that it could potentially take. Aside from Latruska and She Dares the Devil, where's the speed going to come from? Malathop by no means is a speed horse, so she'll probably be perched a few off of it. And you just hope, I think for her, it's genuinely going to be, well, don't get me wrong. Talent-wise, I think she is right there. But she is she feels like a war of attrition type as opposed to maybe the top two girls who it's 
we, we've got a little gas in the tank. We can go and open up on the field. And then if you come and grind us down, so be it. But we're going to have a pretty, pretty healthy head start. But if for whatever reason, those two hook up, let's say Latruska and she dares the devil hook up and they duel each other. And then you got Malathot perhaps just in behind. Depending on how close she is to that pace, who's to say Clarier isn't in just behind her? And now all of a sudden, she's four lengths off of it, half mile into the race, in similar position to this 2017 winner, and perhaps even a similar position to this 2015 winner. And now all of a sudden, excuse me, and the 2016 winner, I should say, and even 2014, if you will. So, I mean, these, for those of you that are watching along, I'll just highlight, you know, look at those three, where the horses were positioned. And even entering the far turn, they're still you know, more than a length off. But with the way that she continues to progress, she, she at least becomes one that if I can't convince myself to put her on top, I could certainly see if you're playing in something like the Breeders' Cup betting challenge, and I've still got a couple of weeks left anyway to try to qualify my way in, but I could certainly see using her as a key underneath at a price. She's going to be no shorter than fourth choice. I could see her being a key for second and third in exact as in tries at 10 to one and, and pressing up some of the more likely outcomes, a Latrusca Clarier exacta and try to really hammer that kind of thing. So the distaff is not run necessarily based on these eight races as an example or a sample size in the same fashion that the classic is. Now the sprint, which Jackie's warrior is going to be the favorite in, I mean, I, I would be flummoxed if he were not, aside from the past two years. And last year was a bit of a, it was a crazy run that Whitmore ended up prevailing in. And the year prior off the top of my head, it's, it's totally slipping my mind who won the sprint that year. Aside from those two years, you're, you're dealing with a pretty consistent running style that you need to be up close to it and be able to just take advantage and be that much better. I mean, this year may have been Matoli. I don't remember off the top of my head. Somebody can correct me. But if you go through and take a look, keeping in mind, now the, the points of call in sprint races are different than the route races that we've just spoken about. First call in route races is going to be a half mile into it. Second call, three quarters of a mile into it. Sprint races, first call is a quarter mile into it. Second is a half mile into the race. Now, when you think about that, it doesn't sound like much. But a half mile into the race in a sprint, in the Breeders' Cup sprint, that's two-thirds of the race is done because you're only going six furlongs. You're going three-quarters of a mile. So once you're a half mile into it, this thing is – it's not done, but it's, it's – much of the running has been done, which is why I think you see this. On average, you got to be about within a length, roughly to have a big chance. And that's typically you figure two thirds of the way into it or a half mile into a three quarter race. That's at the top of the lane. You got to be right there within a length. If you're trying to come from farther out of it. Yes, it has happened in each of the past two years, but it's a very unlikely scenario that presents itself. And by the way, no surprise that last year Whitmore did that and he was 18 to one. I think it, the sprint is typically, and it's a bit of a generalization, but typically, the quality speeds are going to be there at the end. So a Jackie's warrior, he's going to be there. Apart from him, 
who who are the speeds that you look at? By the way, Yalpon has been retired now. Aside from Jackie's Warrior, who are the speeds that you would consider proper quality? And when I say proper quality, I'm I'm saying not just grade one, but Breeders' Cup grade one caliber, not a grade three speed, not a listed stake speed who can go 21, but when they've got someone like a Jackie's Warrior breathing down their neck, they're going to wilt. Who is a quality grade one speed aside from Jackie's Warrior? I mean, nobody's coming directly to mind. And that could be trouble for everybody else because it could be showtime with this horse. I'm hopeful this was at least a, a, I'm going to do the full-blown dive like we did last year about the track profile with Del Mar. Uh, I did the same thing with Keeneland to try to give an idea of where horses need to be positioned at those configurations at that specific racetrack. But I, I do think there is some value to sitting here and taking a look at how winners of each of these three races have gone about their business in the sprint, the distaff, and the classic themselves. You can, these, are, these are exercises that they don't take a great deal of time. You got to go through and, and manually look at some charts. And those of you who are you know, super technically you know, advanced, you can go through and import some stuff into Excel from websites and uh, yada, yada, yada. But point being, it's not an overly laborious kind of exercise, but you can get some very, very vital information that it can give you a slight edge on some of the competition. Knowing where horses typically need to be positioned. And yes, you need to factor in the way each individual race projects to be run this year because no two races are going to be run the same. But you can at least draw some conclusions based on what you've seen here with the prospective horses who could run in each of these three races. Maybe we'll do a little bit of this more in the next few weeks, but we'll certainly do the full-blown track profile piece about Del Mar in the weeks to come as we get closer and closer to the Breeders' Cup. Now, let's wrap up this week's show with some NFL talk, some forecasts for 538 for week four. Week four in the NFL coming up here, knowing that this is being recorded on Monday afternoon, we still have the Eagles-Cowboys game to come tonight. Real quick recap from week three, again, over on 538.com, you can go through, put in your forecast what you think the result of the game will be. It's not factoring in the spread, but it's a likelihood of one team beating another. They tally up your overall total at the end of the week and add that to your season-long running total. So um, for me, I... Headed into the Monday night game, 9-5 and five from this past week. One of the games didn't play for me. That was the Saints and the Patriots because my numbers had that effectively coming out to a tie. So I just had it right down the middle, 50-50. I didn't win or lose based on the result of the Saints basically walking all over the Patriots in Foxborough. Um, but again, 9-5 and five overall, plus 33.2 if you're factoring in the way the predictions of the forecast, the likelihood, the way that you have swayed the percentages. And that's still, again, with tonight's Eagles and Cowboys game still to come. Let's dive into week four. Again, I'd encourage folks to head on over there. If, if nothing else, it's an interesting exercise to go through. You're not factoring in the spreads. I do bring up the spreads here, and you can do with that what you will. But it's a good way to gauge how accurate your forecasts and your predictions are, just purely on the outcome standpoint. And again, I think we need to continue to think about things more from a likelihood and a probability standpoint than just get so stuck into the result 
and use that as what we live and die by in the big picture of were we correct in our assessment or were we incorrect, that sort of thing. So Jacksonville Jaguars at Cincinnati Bengals. The Bengals are seven-point favorites at home. I have this game 21-14 to 14 Cincinnati. That checks out to a 71% likelihood of the Bengals winning. Washington football team at the Atlanta Falcons. The Falcons are one-point dogs at home. I have this game tied 17-17, 50-50 shot. It will not factor into my forecast over on 538. Coin flip for me, really, right down the middle. Houston Texans at the Buffalo Bills. The Bills are 16.5-point favorites at home. That is a massive number to lay. Uh, but based on my numbers, it's right on par. I have Buffalo winning 31-14 to at home against Houston. The probability is actually larger than the 95% that I'm going with, but I'm not comfortable going more than that. It's still wild that 95 is the number that it comes out to, but realistically, when you think about it, it's effectively a 20 to 1 shot that Houston would win at home. Uh, and, and I'm being a little bit kind there. The number actually checks out to be even more than that. But point being, I've got Buffalo winning 31 to 14 at home, 95% chance of that happening. The Detroit Lions at the Chicago Bears. The Bears are three-point favorites at home. I have Chicago winning 19-16. to That's a 59% likelihood of happening. The Carolina Panthers at the Dallas Cowboys. This number could change a little bit based on what happens with the Monday night game with the Cowboys. Uh, but entering this point anyway, when we're recording, uh, the Cowboys are four-point favorites. And based on my model... They have the, or the, the numbers would check out to the Cowboys winning 20 to 19. It's a 53% chance of happening. Uh, so we will go with that. I'll have to make an amendment one way or the other, depending on how tonight's game plays out. But I can't imagine it changing too, too much. Uh, the Indianapolis Colts at the Miami Dolphins. The Dolphins are two and a half point favorites. I have this one also 19 to 19, 50 50 right down the middle. So this is a game that will not factor into my overall tally for the forecast next week. The same goes for the next game, the Cleveland Browns. At the Minnesota Vikings, the Vikings are two-point dogs at home against the Browns. I have this 23-23. to So again, a 50-50 shot right down the middle, flip a coin. I could see it going either way, and it will not factor into my forecast in the long run. New York Giants at the New Orleans Saints. The Saints are 7.5-point favorites. My numbers come out to a Saints victory 24-10. to And the likelihood of that happening is 89%. I'm going to probably throttle it back to 75% or so when I input the game. Simply because, the, not because I believe in the Giants, but it has more to do with I still am not totally sure what to make of the Saints. Um, the, the two victories, they caught Green Bay flatter than flat in week one. This past week against New England, uh, just I think a, a, a number of things played into that game playing out the way that it did. Not only was New England really subpar but you can't help but think that they've got an eye toward next week or this coming week with Brady and the Bucks coming to town and then when the Saints played the Panthers in week two they got pretty well manhandled so there's a part of me that isn't totally sold that they are as good as maybe my numbers would suggest they are so I'm going to throttle it back a little bit to 75 percent but I'll stick with the 24 to 10 sort of forecast for the Saints over the Giants at home. Tennessee Titans at the New York Jets. I have the the Jets are seven and a half point dogs at home. I have the Titans winning 30 to 14. That's a 95% chance of that happening. The Chiefs at the Eagles. The Eagles are six and a half point favorites, which again could change based on the result from Monday night. Uh, I have the Chiefs winning 24 to 14. 
in Philadelphia. That's an 80% chance of happening. The Arizona Cardinals at the Los Angeles Rams should be a good game. Rams are six-point favorites. I have the Rams winning 21-18. to That's a 59% chance of happening. The Seattle Seahawks at the San Francisco 49ers. The Niners are three-point favorites. This would probably be the game that I would be locking into from a gambling standpoint. Um, I have the Seahawks winning 21-18 to on the road, and I, I there's just... We're already, I know it's early, but it's kind of getting late for a team like Seattle, knowing how that division out in the NFC West is loaded. I think there's going to be an element of desperation here. I think they're going to get the job done on the road in San Francisco, and I think it's just going to make sort of the calls for the move for Kyle Shanahan to move to Trey Lance from Garoppolo even louder and louder and louder if they don't do it in the midst of the game. I'm going to go with Seattle winning 21-18. to 18. It's a 59% chance of happening. You're catching points there if you want to play that game. Seattle plus three on the road. I would consider playing the money line, which if I can pull it up on the fly here, is plus 130. That would be probably the way that I would go in that game. Seattle at San Francisco. Baltimore Ravens at the Denver Broncos. The Broncos are one and a half point favorites. They're undefeated. <laughs> My numbers have this game coming out 14 to 10 Denver. 62% chance of happening. I mean, it's it's not way, way below, but it's... Well, it is way, way below. The total right now is 44. I mean, again, do with it what you will. It's early in the season. Things can change. But the Baltimore offense looks pretty piss poor. And Denver is, they've been very steady. Granted, they haven't played anyone. 14 to 10 sounds really, really light. But at the same time, until proven wrong, I'm going to stick with that. And from a forecast standpoint, 62% chance of happening. Um... I tend to agree with that. I think Denver's probably just an overall better team than Baltimore. They were probably a little underrated coming into the season, the Broncos. Um, and it does feel like it boils down to as long as Bridgewater doesn't screw it up, which he's not one to do for the most part, I think Denver's actually pretty decent. I don't know if they're going to be a playoff team, but I think they I think they are right there and have every right to beat a team like Baltimore, who it's been well documented. They have their own issues. Pittsburgh Steelers at the Green Bay Packers. The Packers are six and a half point favorites. I've got Green Bay winning 21 to 15. That's 68% chance of happening. The Sunday night game, which I'm very much looking forward to, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at the New England Patriots. The Patriots are six and a half point dogs. I I still fully believe in Mac. The play calling suspect at best this past weekend and really through the first three weeks of the season. Um, I have a feeling, especially off the loss to the Rams. I think the Bucs are going to come out firing. I have Tampa winning 24-14 to 14 in Foxborough on Sunday night. That's an 80% chance of winning. And then the Monday night game is the Raiders at the LA Chargers. That's another good game. Chargers are three and a half point favorites at home. I have the LA Chargers winning 21-19. That's a 56% chance of happening. There you have it. My week four assessment that I will be inputting over on 538.com. And let me know what you think about any of these games, any of the teams so far. Through the 21-22 season, it's been entertaining. All hell was breaking loose on Sunday afternoon. You had the the Tucker field goal uh, doinking off the the crossbar and through. I mean, what do you do if you're Detroit at that point? That's just brutal, brutal luck. The wild game with the Raiders and the Dolphins and just so many different things going on. The season, is, I think, has lived up to expectations, and you've got some good teams. This is also a great opportunity, I think, if you're someone like myself. Yeah, Kansas City, they've got some flaws. They're still, to me, one of the top, I would say top five teams in the NFL. Certainly top two or three in the AFC. Uh, This is a great opportunity, I would think, to take advantage of some of the markets that perhaps people have gone overboard 
And yes, they've got to pass a number of teams in their own division, but I, I would think you could probably get a reasonable number on them to win the AFC West. Because I still think they're the best team out there. It's just a matter of they got to... They've been... It's not like they've been embarrassed in these games. They should have beaten Baltimore. They were right there with the Chargers all throughout the game yesterday. A couple of breaks go a different way. All of a sudden, you're talking about the 3-0 and Chiefs, and they deserve to be at the top of the market. So um, I do think you've got an opportunity to exploit some weaknesses right now and some lines. Uh, but overall, let me know what you think about any of these games for Week 4 or anything we've seen so far in this NFL season beneath the video player on YouTube. And that'll do it for this week's show. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, as always, beneath the video player on YouTube or on Twitter at Bernie underscore Matt, uh, please rate, review, and subscribe however you listen to this thing. So many ways to find the show, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, InTheMoneyPodcast.com, YouTube, you name it, you can find it. Thursday, don't forget to join us for Horse Player Happy Hour. It is the beginning of the postseason, but also that day, and you got to support it, there's a special BCBC qualifier. I'm going to be playing in it. I think you all should be playing in it as well. I believe, and you know what? I'll take a look right now as we're going through this. believe it's $179 buy-in. It's a pick and pray. The races have not been announced just yet, but as my computer loads, Thursday BCBC special, BCBC qualifier, pick and pray, $179 is the entry fee. For every 65 spots, there will be a full $10,000 BCBC seat online. I will be involved, and I'm sure we'll be talking about it throughout the happy hour show on Thursday. Don't forget to join myself and PTF. Uh, We'll be back next Monday with episode 85 of the program. But until then, best of luck however you play, whatever you play, and wherever you play. This has been episode 84 of the Matt Bernier Show.